As we come to God's Word today, I think it's safe to assume that there have been two things very much on our minds this past week. The first is the damage and the suffering that has been inflicted upon our town by the biggest flood in its recorded history. Uh, If someone had told us that water would be uh, flowing over the Ballina Road Bridge, we wouldn't have believed it. It's been heartbreaking to see the devastation caused to homes and businesses. It's even more upsetting to think about those who've lost their lives and how terrifying their final moments must have been. Now we all have friends and family members who've been severely impacted by this flood. Uh, I'm sure we're all grieving to some degree and uh, we have several weeks of disruption ahead of us. The second thing that has been on many of our minds is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Whenever we've turned on the TV or the radio or looked up the news online, we've been confronted with scenes of death and destruction and dislocation. We've really been confronted with evil, uh, with the very worst things that come from the human heart, greed, malice, violence and murder. It feels like the world has suddenly changed. Uh, Many believe that wars like the one unfolding in the middle of Europe were a thing of the past. Uh, Many are concerned about what all this means for the peace and security of the wider world. We've been hearing helicopters flying over our town this week and it occurred to me that for us that has been a very welcome sound. Uh, We know those helicopters are there to help us, to rescue people in danger, or to provide supplies and so forth. But if if we were in Kyiv or in Kharkiv or some other city in Ukraine, the sound of helicopters in the sky would be terrifying. Uh, You would immediately think, uh, is it going to fire missiles at us? Uh, Is it dropping off soldiers to come and kill us? It's so very sad to think about what ordinary people like us are going through over there. Like me, you've probably had some moments of discouragement this past week, uh, some moments of sadness or sleeplessness or frustration. Maybe you've been really troubled by the flooding and what it's caused, or you've been struggling with anxiety. Or maybe you've just had enough. I felt a bit like that, you know, after to two after two years of COVID and all the disruption, and now this. So what does a pastor say to his church family at a time like this? Good question. You know, if our Lord's Day program had not been disrupted by the flood, uh, I would have been preaching in our evening service today, and in our evening service we've been working through the book of Amos. And so I thought I might bring a message from the text of Scripture that I would have been preaching on at that service had we been able to meet together as per usual. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Now after the week we've just had, you're going to preach to us from the book of Amos? Really? Couldn't you think of anywhere else in the Bible to preach from? Perhaps one of those nice passages in the New Testament or maybe a much-loved psalm or something like that? If that's what you're thinking, I get it. The book of Amos is not the first place you'd think to go at a time like this. 
But do stick with me. There is a message for our hearts today in the text that we're going to consider. And perhaps it is exactly the message that we need to hear. Now in our study through Amos, we're in the middle of chapter 3. and Today we're going to cover verses 9 to 11. And I'll read them in just a moment. But before I do, let me remind you that Amos prophesied during the era of the divided kingdom. There was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Amos was sent to bring God's message to the kingdom of Israel. And the capital of Israel was the city of Samaria. One final point to remember is that Israel had departed from the ways of the Lord. Its first king set up a counterfeit religion and it was basically downhill from there. Aside from a very small remnant of true believers, Israel became a very wicked and immoral nation. And Amos was tasked with bringing what was essentially a message of judgment. Now with all that in mind, please follow along as I read our passage, Amos chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is a word that appears four times in these three verses, the word palaces. In verse 9 there are references to the palaces at Ashdod and the palaces in the land of Egypt. In verse 10, Amos refers to the palaces in Samaria. And then in verse 11, we're told that those palaces will be spoiled. Now this word in Hebrew refers to more than just the building where the royal family lives. Uh, It's the idea of a citadel or a stronghold. Yes, it's where the king and his family lives. But it's also the seat of government and of commerce. A bit like what we would refer to as the CBD. Now in the ancient Near East, that part of a city was often elevated and fortified. It was where the rich and powerful lived and conducted their business. What we have in this passage is an invitation to the rich and powerful in the cities of Ashdod and Egypt to come and see what was happening in Samaria. Now this wasn't a a literal invitation, but a rhetorical device, a way of emphasising how wicked the city of Samaria had become, as we shall see. Now the prophet invites these people to come and behold the great tumults in Samaria and the oppressed in the midst thereof. And this expression, great tumults, refers to people who are dismayed and vexed by what they are experiencing. They're troubled, they're upset, and that's because in this case they were being oppressed. The poor and the vulnerable in Samaria were being exploited by the rich and the powerful. Their treatment is described in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. 
Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. I won't go into detail today. Now we, we covered these verses in an earlier sermon. In short, they describe four kinds of oppression. The poor in Israel were being exploited economically, sexually, financially and systemically. What little land they might have owned was being taken from them. Many were being forced into a cruel form of debt slavery. Many were being sexually abused and certain aspects of the legal system were being used against them. The law of God was supposed to bring justice and relief to the needy and the vulnerable. But it was being ignored. It was being transgressed. Greed was flourishing. And as a consequence, there was terrible suffering. In chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord further describes this oppression. He mentions those who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. This may refer to the proceeds of violence and robbery, what was taken from the people by these means, or it may be referring to the activity of those who lived in these palaces. What what were they doing for much of the time? Violence and robbery. (laughs) Either way, it's a damning indictment of the elite in Samaria and how they were treating the poor. But it gets worse. We're also told in verse 10 that the rich and the powerful in Samaria had completely lost their moral compass, their sense of right and wrong. The text says, For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. They were mistreating the vulnerable, giving free rein to their greed, and they thought nothing of it. They'd gotten to the point where their conscience no longer troubled them. Their their hearts were no longer moved by the privation and suffering of a whole class of people in their own city. Calvin puts it this way in his commentary. He says, Here then he accuses the Israelites of willful blindness, for they hardened themselves in every evil and extinguished all judgment, shame and reason, so that they no longer distinguished between what was just and and unjust. Now in verse 11, the prophet announces the judgment of God. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even around about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. An enemy would come against Israel, and it would do to Samaria what it had done to its poor. The enemy would take away Samaria's strength and spoil its palaces. One author calls this a stellar example of poetic justice. Those structures where the perverse fruit of oppression was hoarded were going to be ransacked. We know this happened 
In the year 722, the Assyrians invaded, and under their king Shalmaneser, they conquered Samaria. The kingdom of Israel was finished. Now before we move to some points of application, there is one more thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage. I want to go back to the invitation in verse 9. This call to the palaces of Ashdod and the palaces of Egypt to come and see what was happening in Samaria. What was that all about? I'll listen to this from one commentator, and then I'll explain further. The choice of people is interesting. Ashdod, one of the Philistine city-states, was singled out for judgment earlier. Its transgression was trafficking those captured in war, perhaps Israelites, as slaves to Edom, another foe of Israel. Egypt, of course, was the ultimate symbol of oppression, and the one from whom Israel had been redeemed. To invite these nations that mistreated the people of God to verify Yahweh's assessment of Israel and watch his punishment is the height of irony and an indication of the depth of Yahweh's disappointment. Now things must have been pretty bad in Israel if the Lord was calling Philistines and Egyptians to come and confirm his assessment. Now that's the point. These nations knew a thing or two about greed and oppression and cruelty and violence. In fact, they were experts. They would recognise it when they saw it. And perhaps the sense is that they would be shocked. Shocked to see Israel behaving this way. Perhaps even shocked at the scale of it. That these nations were called on to come and see does indeed show how displeased the Lord was with his people. They were behaving like the godless nations that surrounded them. So that's what our text in Amos is about. Uh, This is the message the Lord had for his people all those years ago. And you might ask, what's the message in all of this for us? We are an awful long way from Israel 800 years before the birth of Christ. (laughs) This passage teaches us or reminds us of three things. And these are what I want to leave you with today. First of all, it reminds us of what sin can do in the unregenerate heart. I'll say that again. It reminds us of what sin can do in the unregenerate heart. And we see that in verse 10. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. A sin, if left unchecked, if consistently indulged in the heart and life of a a person who does not know Jesus, will slowly eat away at their moral compass. It will distort that compass and eventually destroy it altogether. That's what had happened to the rich and powerful in Samaria. They had forsaken the Lord and indulged their greed. To satisfy their lusts, they had mistreated people a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, until eventually they didn't see anything problematic about their behaviour. They couldn't discern right from wrong, good from evil. To use New Testament language, they had defiled their consciences. In studying for this message, 
I couldn't help but think of the events unfolding in Ukraine and the attitude of the Russian president. Now, of course, I'm observing events from far away and through the filter of the media, but it sure seems to me that verse 10 is very applicable. Here is a man who is engaging in violence and robbery and does not know to do right. He seems to have completely lost his moral compass. He seems to be entirely untroubled by the evil and the suffering he is perpetrating. Now the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He describes the degradation of the human conscience as God and his ways are neglected and then rejected. When men and women pursue a godless life, when they give themselves over with reckless abandon to a life of greed or sexual immorality or anger or whatever lust of the flesh it might be, God gives them over to a a reprobate mind. That is a, a debased mind where they lose the capacity to even see what God's will is when the door is open to every evil thing imaginable. This is what sin has the power to do in the lives of those who don't know Jesus. This is what was unfolding among the rich and powerful in Samaria. And it ought to make us thankful for our salvation. That God, by the blood of his Son and by the work of his Spirit, has saved us from what sin may well have wrought in our lives. A sin was most surely taking us to hell. But it could also have driven us into the kind of moral depravity that we never thought possible. Apart from the grace of Jesus, our moral compass would have been bent and distorted and possibly destroyed completely. Maybe some of us got pretty far down that road. The road to rack and ruin. We we did some pretty awful things and he graciously intervened before it was too late. When we consider the exceeding sinfulness of sin, it ought to make us grateful for our salvation and it ought to motivate us to share the gospel with others before sin makes their lives a living hell and then plunges them into hell for all eternity. Humanity's number one problem is sin. It's not climate change, it's not political instability, it's not income inequality, it's not racism or sexism or homophobia, it's sin. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can solve this problem. Only Jesus can fix what is broken. Only Jesus can cleanse a person's heart and make them whole. Only Jesus can empower men and women to love others and to live righteously. Our passage in Amos reminds us of what sin can do in the unregenerate heart. And then secondly, it reminds us that God is not oblivious to the suffering of the poor and the vulnerable. Think about it. The reason why the Lord invited the rulers of Ashdod and the rulers of Egypt to come and behold what was going on in Samaria is because he himself had seen it. (laughs) He knew what was going on. He could see the cruelty and the abuse. He could see the injustice and the violence. 
He could see what little resources the poor in Samaria had being taken from them. The Lord could see what was happening in the public square. and He could see what was happening behind closed doors. And he was not indifferent. He didn't shrug his shoulders and say, oh well, no. He was going to pour out his judgment on those who were guilty of this behaviour. And the Bible is full of passages that speak of God's care and concern for the poor and the vulnerable. In the Old Testament and the New, we see him ordering his people to care for those in need. And he is deeply grieved when these people are mistreated and exploited. Now, there are many verses I could quote to show you this, but for now I'm going to mention just three. Two from the book of Proverbs and one from the Psalms. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 22 and 23. Rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. It's very clear, isn't it? And then this beautiful verse from Psalm 68, verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Now, the word judge is the idea of a protector. God is a protector of widows, a protector of the most vulnerable in society. He cares for these people very much. You know, when we see those terrible scenes unfolding in Ukraine, when we see people being oppressed, being subject to violence, having to sleep in the subways, when we see people fleeing for their lives, we can take comfort in this. That God sees what is happening and he is not unmoved. He cares deeply for those who are being subject to such malevolence. And the same is true for the people in our community and in our region who are suffering as a result of the flood. Those who have suddenly become homeless. Those who have lost everything. Those who are anxious about what the future holds for them and their children. Of course, what people are experiencing in our community is not the result of human evil, but the result of natural evil. The result of a creation that has been cursed on account of man's sin. But it's still suffering all the same. And God is just as concerned. And we've seen his common grace at work in a marvellous way. So many in our town have done what they can to assist those in great need. We've seen many wonderful examples of bravery and compassion. And what that is, is the Imago Dei. It's the image of God that human persons still bear. And God has been demonstrating his care for those who are suffering through the kindness and generosity of men and women towards their neighbours and towards people they've never met. Where does that impulse to help come from? It comes from God. He put it there. It's a reflection of his character. Evolution can't explain it. The the theory of evolution would suggest that we leave the weak to suffer and die and then take their stuff to ensure our survival. God has been demonstrating his care for those who are suffering through the exercise of human kindness and that's wonderful for us to see. But what is even more wonderful is knowing that 
He has demonstrated his compassion in the greatest way possible by sending his son to die for sinners and to conquer death. Now God sent his son to do what was necessary to one day rid the world of pain and suffering altogether. No more wicked rulers who can wage war and no more weather systems that can cause catastrophic floods. God sent his son to redeem lost sinners and to restore a cursed creation. That brings us to the third thing I want to leave you with today. These verses in Amos remind us of what sin can do in the unregenerate heart. They remind us that God is not oblivious to the suffering of the poor and the vulnerable. And then finally they remind us that God will one day make all things right. We see this in verse 11, in what our friend called a stellar example of poetic justice. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Now justice was going to prevail in Samaria. Now that was not a nice thought for most in Israel because they were going to be on the heavy end of that justice. But the point is that there would be justice. All of the evil would be addressed. Those who were guilty of oppressing the poor and the vulnerable would be recompensed for their deeds. They weren't going to get away with it. Righteousness would prevail in that most unrighteous of societies. And brothers and sisters, this is part of our blessed hope that God, by the second advent of his Son, will make righteousness to prevail in all the earth. Those who have made others to suffer by their greed and their cruelty, unless they repent, will be held to account and be judged for their evil deeds. Many might avoid justice in this life, but they will not escape justice in the life to come. Now we could go to many places in the Bible that speak of the judgment of the wicked. But I'm going to finish with some verses that might seem more relevant to us than they have in the past. That God is going to make things right in the arena of human affairs. But he's also going to make all things right in the natural world. And it's the brokenness of the natural world that has impacted our lives so much this week just past. Now there is a remarkable passage in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul tells us that the creation will share in the salvation that we have experienced. The salvation won by Jesus Christ. Listen to these verses. Romans chapter 8 beginning at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now that's the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, this, is, this is a reference to the consummation of our salvation, the, the resurrection of the body and the second coming of Christ. You know, that's when the sons of God will be revealed. What Christians really are will be visible. 
and there is a sense in which the creation, the, the plants and the animals, the mountains and the rivers are waiting for this day, longing for it. And why? Verse 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. That's a reference to the curse. The, the creation was cursed by God. You know, our sin had consequences for the natural world, but God has also given the creation hope. Verse 21, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation will be delivered from the, the bondage of corruption like we have been. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And we've seen some of that groaning and travailing this past week, haven't we? We've, we've felt it. Verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now the natural world that has been so cruel to our community this week will be restored one day. It, it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. It too will be freed from what sin has wrought. The natural world will no longer be a source of pain and suffering, but only a source of joy and blessing. And I look forward to that day. Don't you? Our hearts are pained by what's happening overseas and by what has happened in our own town. But in all of this, let's remember that God cares about our suffering. Let's remember that Christ has come. He has saved us from our sins. He has conquered death. And he will make all things right. May God bless you. Amen.